I mentioned last last week as we uh, did we we entered into chapter number ten, and uh, we talked about about a parenthetical past the, the the interlude or the parentheses that begins here at, at chapter ten and runs through chapter eleven and verse number fourteen, and it's rather a lengthy interlude. And uh, we had one back in chapter 7, right after the sixth seal, before the opening of the seventh seal. There was an interlude while the um, 144,000 were sealed to begin their ministry. And here now, <clears throat> at the end of chapter 9, which chapter 8 and 9 were rough, weren't they? They were kind of rough. And um, just talking about those trumpets that were sounding and the judgments that were coming during the tribulation. And this was during the first part of the tribulation and the terrible judgments that were coming upon the earth in Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, we began a, a, a interlude. God gives another interlude, kind of a break from the judgments. And so last week, uh, chapter 10 was rather short. It was uh, 11 verses, but there was some very good stuff in there about the mighty angel that came down with uh, his and placed his foot on the land and the sea. And um, uh, the things that took place there in chapter number 10. And so we won't go back and go through all of that, but uh, he had the little book in his hand, told John to eat it up. And uh, anyway, it was just some good stuff. So we're continuing in that same interlude. And uh, in these couple of chapters, we're looking more on the bright side of a very dark picture. And that's what makes studying this particular book of prophecy uh, makes it a little difficult to do and to teach because there's a lot of dark stuff. There's a lot of judgment. When you're reading through the Bible, which I just finished reading through the Old Testament here a while back, and, and uh, man, when you're reading straight through and you're reading through, uh, you know, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, uh, and, and these... Uh, uh, Hosea and all these, then the minor prophets and Daniel, and you're reading through all of those prophets just one day after a next after a next, you know, there's only so much judgment you can take. <laughs> but, uh, but nevertheless, that was God dealing with his people in the Old Testament through those prophets, trying to get them to come back to him. And you, when you think about what happened to Israel and they're carried away into Babylonian captivity, but, you know, and the judgment that came on them through Nebuchadnezzar. But how often, how many prophets did God send to them? How much grace did he extend to them? How many warnings? And they, they refused to heed the warnings and to listen. So, you know, prophetic. And so, you know, after the rapture, God begins to deal with the earth again and with Israel the same as he was in the Old Testament. Because, you know, he's still extending grace, but the age, the church age, and the age of grace is over. The bride of Christ is in heaven. So we're, we're, getting, we're getting a little bit of a bright side here in this particular, uh, these two chapters um, before the sounding of the second, of the seventh trumpet. We're, we're right close to, we're right at the midway point, the halfway point of the tribulation, of that seven-year tribulation divided into two different sections. Three and a half years separates. Um, the mid is the midpoint of, the, of, the, of Daniel's 70th week and of this seven-year tribulation. So in this chapter number 11, we are introduced to a couple of guys here, which are God, two powerful witnesses of God's that are armed here during the tribulation period with supernatural power. They are so mighty and powerfully anointed of God, they're able to defy all the might and all the authority of the earth and even the Antichrist himself. These are some 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 fantastic guys. And we're going to be looking at that these two witnesses here in just a moment. Um, but before the witnesses are introduced, there is the measuring of the temple in Jerusalem. So in verse number one, 
If you're there, Revelation chapter 11 and verse number 1, it says, Then I was given to read like a measuring rod, John speaking here. I was given to read like a measuring rod, and the angel told me, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside of the temple, and do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So John here is given a measuring rod. It was a reed. They were, that's what they used. They didn't have uh, Stanley tape measures back then, and so they had had measuring rods that were cut at different lengths. They were kind of like bamboo. They were used, they were very lightweight. They were very sturdy and straight, so they could use them for measuring. So this measuring rod is given to John, and he's told to take this and to measure the temple of God. Well, it doesn't tell us that about him measuring it. He just told him to measure the temple and what area not to measure. And it doesn't give us any measurements. It doesn't tell us that he measured it and it was so, so much this way or so much that way. So the point of him, of him saying this or putting this in here, I don't think is to, to let us know the size of the temple. But I think that what he's doing here is, the, is that he's, he's, this passage is given to let us know that at this particular time, close here to this midpoint of the tribulation period, that there is a Jewish temple or will be a Jewish temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. There will be a temple there. Now, the Greek word that's used there in chapter 11 for, for temple is, there's a couple of different Greek words. I'm not going to try to pronounce them. One of, the, one of those words is used when it refers to the entire temple area with the, the, the temple proper, with the holy place, the holy of holies, and the outer court. The other word is used just to refer to the temple that contains the holy place and the holy of holies. And I think we're all familiar with how the tabernacle was laid out, the holy place and the holy holies, the outer court, the temple was laid out in a similar fashion. But the holy place and the holy of holies is what's referred to here with this Greek word for temple and not the entire temple complex. So God tells, well, John then is told not to measure the outer court, but just to measure the temple of God, the altar, and the worshipers. And he said, leave out, leave out the court which is outside the temple. So the outer court area is to be left out of this measurement. Now, when did John write this? This we we discovered and we 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 found out at the very beginning of our study that the book of Revelation was written by John when he was on the Isle of Patmos at around 95 AD. And when John penned these words here about measuring the temple, there was not a temple. There was not a temple in Jerusalem at this particular time. This, two, nearly two decades prior to this writing, the temple had been destroyed in 70 A.D. And there is still no temple in Jerusalem today. There's no Jewish temple there today. Since 70 A.D., they have uh, not had a place to offer their sacrifices, to do their worship and all of those things. So for 2,000 years, there's been no temple there. But there is what's, what's on that temple mount, as you, we all know, is the, what, uh, the Dome of the Rock. We'll be looking at that here in a minute. But, um, but, but the Dome of the Rock's there. But there is a third temple that will be rebuilt in the future. And it's referred to as the Tribulation Temple. We are well aware. We are aware of the other two temples, the two previous temples. Not talking about the tabernacle. They had the tabernacle in the wilderness. The tabernacle was at Shiloh. The tabernacle was used for the worship of God up until Solomon. David wanted, remember, David wanted to build God a house. He wanted to build him a temple. And God said, no, you know, you're, you're a bloody man. You, you're, you've got blood on your hands. You're a man of war. He said, um, I'm not, you, you can't build 
build me a house. I'll build you a house, but you're not going to build me a house. But he said, but I'm going to use your son that, that you have. I'm going to use your son, Solomon, to build my house. So, um, and that's what God did. David began to save, and David began to collect money and gold and things for the building of that temple. But it was when Solomon, Solomon came on the scene as king and was made king after David's death that Solomon built the temple of God, the very first temple. He built that temple on the Temple Mount, 950 B.C., the place where Mount Moriah was, where it is believed that Abraham offered Isaac. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful structure. That temple was a wonder of the ancient world. But this temple of the Jews in 586 B.C. was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar when he came in and took Jerusalem, carried the children of Israel, carried the Jews into captivity. Many of the Jews were slain there at Jerusalem, but the temple was destroyed. That Solomon's temple, that beautiful temple was destroyed. Something had happened that they thought never, ever could happen, and God told them it would happen if if they didn't repent, but they just couldn't make themselves believe that that could ever happen. Amen. But it did. So the Jews went into captivity for 70 years, and the second temple was the temple of Zerubbabel. It's recorded, you know, in Zechariah, Nehemiah, Ezra, and Haggai. Those books talk about the, the rebuilding of that second temple. It was some 70 years later, five, uh, 516 B.C seat under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra, and uh, this temple was not as elaborate as Solomon's temple. They, they came, you know, they had to dig that rubble out. They were very discouraged, but they did build the temple. There were some of those older Jews that were there. If you read, you, when you read in Ezra and Nehemiah and those passages, those older Jews that had, that had been carried away captives into Babylon that remembered that first temple of Solomon, how beautiful it was. Man, they stood there. The young, the young men rejoiced and shouted, and the old men wept. And they said, it's just not like it was. It's not like it was in its former glory. So this temple was not as elaborate that Zerubbabel built. It was not as elaborate as Solomon's temple. But later on, later on, this temple of Zerubbabel had been remodeled and enlarged by King Herod the Great. He was trying to gain some favor with the Jews, and so he spent a lot of money and a lot of time adding to Zerubbabel's temple, uh, making it more beautiful. And so this, this temple of Herod, it was known as Herod's temple. Some people referred to that as the third temple and the one that's going to be built as the fourth temple. But I, I, don't, I don't refer to Herod's temple as the third temple. It was still Zerubbabel's temple. It was, just, it, was, it was just renovated and remodeled and made better by Herod. So when we talk about that temple, I still refer to it as the second temple. But the temple in Jerusalem was the one, this temple of Herod, this second temple was the one that was there at Jerusalem during the ministry of Jesus. It was the temple that Jesus taught in. It was the temple that Jesus drove the money changers out of. It was the temple that Jesus, uh, when the disciples came to him, remember in Matthew 24 and uh, Matthew 24, uh, Luke 21 and Mark 13, when, when the disciples came to Jesus and they were just bragging on that temple, said, oh, look how beautiful this is. Can't just admire this beautiful temple, Lord. And you remember what Jesus said? Jesus spoke a prophecy about that temple. And in Matthew 24, 2, Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. What? This temple's going to be destroyed? Oh, no way. But it was. That prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled in AD 70 when Titus and the 10th Roman Legion came into Jerusalem and, uh, and, and finally they laid siege to Jerusalem for, for, for quite some time. But when they finally broke through the walls and they, 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 um, they captured Jerusalem, they slaughtered many of the Jews. But Titus, King, uh, General Titus had given an order that the temple not be destroyed. 
that it not be destroyed. But he had some disobedient soldiers that, had, that went ahead and threw flaming torches inside the temple. Well, inside the temple, you know, it was cedar wood overlaid with gold. There was a lot of combustible things there. But nevertheless, the temple set on fire, and it burned, it burned the temple down to the ground. Now, here's something that I found this very interesting because the fire was so hot that it caused the old overlaid gold to melt, that overlaid gold that was on the walls and on the doors and on the floor and other places of that temple, from the heat of that fire, that gold melted and it seeped down between the cracks of those massive stones that were used to build that temple with. The Roman soldiers, here's what they did. They took that temple, literally took apart that temple stone by stone with wedges and with crowbars, pried those stones apart. Every one of them brought every stone down. And in between those stones, on those stones, they scraped the gold from every one of those stones. And not one stone was left standing, and the words of Jesus were fulfilled exactly to the T. Listen to me. When God says something, when he makes a prophecy, when Jesus speaks it will happen just like he said that it will happen and if he said that and it happened and if he says here there's going to be a temple built there's going to be a temple built these things that he prophesies in his word will be done and will come to pass just as he has said they will can I get an amen here today amen so so that temple was completely destroyed. There was a plow run over the ground. Everything was leveled. It was completely leveled, and the prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled exactly as he had said that it would be uh, some 40 years after his death and resurrection. But now we come to this temple here. This third temple, the temple that hasn't been built yet, but the one that is talked about in Revelation 11. And the Bible predicts there will be another Jewish temple built and that it will exist during the time of the tribulation period. Well, it's not there yet, okay? It hasn't been built yet, but the Bible predicts there will be a temple built in the last days, a temple of the Jews on the Temple Mount. Paul talked about it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 3 and 4. He said, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away uh, and unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin, speaking of the Antichrist, be revealed the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself. And here's what the Antichrist is going to do in verse 4. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Do you notice that? The Antichrist, the man of sin, is going to sit where? In the temple of God and show himself and declare himself to be God. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 15. He said this concerning the tribulation. He said, when, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. What is the holy place? It's the holy of holies. The abomination of desolation was prophesied by, um, by Daniel. And it's when, during this mid part of the tribulation, when uh, the Antichrist breaks his treaty with Israel, he goes in and uh, desecrates the temple. He stops the offerings, the oblations, and the offerings of the Jews. He goes in and sets himself in that temple and declares himself to be God, sets up an idol of himself in the holy of holies, which is the abomination of desolation. That's when Jesus told them, and, and, and in that passage, he's, it says there, he who reads, let him understand. And he's telling the Jews, when you see that, get out of town. 
it's almost over, and you're going to be in danger. Get out of Jerusalem when that happens. So for the Antichrist to do that, there has to be a temple. To set the abomination of desolation in the holy place, there has to be a temple built in Jerusalem. Daniel said in Daniel 9.27, Then he shall confirm, speaking of the Antichrist, this is what will start the tribulation. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week or seven years, but in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So there has to be sacrifice and offering being made by the Jews for the Antichrist to stop the sacrifice and offerings. There's no sacrifice and offerings being made in Israel today because there is no temple, there is no brazen altar, but there will be because John was told to measure the temple and the altar and the worshipers. So there will be. The Jews are ready to build this temple. There are currently preparations are being made now and have been for quite some time for the construction and the operations of a third temple. You can go on some websites, the Temple Institute, templemountfaithful.org, and you can look at those websites and, and read all about what they're doing to prepare for the, this third temple to be built. But the, third, the, the Temple Institute and, and other related organizations are preparing for all the required needs that will be needed for an operational third t temple. Uh, they tell us that the architectural drawings for this temple are already exist. The Levitical priesthood are already assigned and trained, including the required high priest. They're getting everything ready. The temple vessels that are used in the worship that they, uh, the, and the sacrifices, the vestments like the clothing of the Levites and the robe of the high priest and all those things are all prepared, including they have a menorah, they have a table of showbread, they have a golden altar of incense. They are ready to build this temple. There was an article in 2018, just a few years ago, on the templemountfaithful.org website, and it says that the cornerstone for the third holy temple, this is a Jewish website, the cornerstone for the third holy temple prepared by the faithful movement is ready to start the process of the building of the temple. So they are ready we are close. Oh, listen. Well, what's all that got to do with anything? With the preparations that are being made, and we know that by the midpoint of the tribulation, this temple will be up. How close are we to the coming of the Lord for His church? My Lord, just gets me, just stirs me up. It makes it gets me excited. I can't help it. Amen. Don't want to help it. But there is something on the Temple Mount, and it's called the Dome of the Rock. Have you ever seen the pictures and things of the Dome of the Rock? Right there is the Dome of the Rock. It's not a mosque. It is a, um, it's a, Jew, it's a it's not Jewish, it's an Islamic Muslim shrine. But it is not a mosque, but it sets, it sets on the Temple Mount where um where where they they everybody believes and feels that right there where the dome of the rock is was where the temple set and where the holy of holies was but um you know there's been some uh Jewish archaeologists and and um and and scholars that have have done some research and some study and they have come up to the conclusion now that this right here was not where the Dome of the Rock set was not the original place where the Temple Holy of Holies sets. Because right here is 
called the Golden Gate, which is the Eastern Gate. It's been sealed up and will remain sealed, the Bible says, until Messiah comes in through that gate. Next one to go through that gate would be Jesus. But, but, but they have determined that the, that the Temple Mount, where the Holy of Holies was, you, you could look from the Mount of Olives through the Eastern Gate to the exact place where the where the the temple proper was sitting with the holy place and the holy of holies so they've determined that that the that the actual place the temple mount with the holy of holies is was more right in this area and that all of this was a part of the what outer court well isn't it amazing that that the lord tells tells John, measure the temple and the altar, but leave the outer court out and don't measure that. Why? Because I'm getting ahead of myself, but uh, he said, because it will be given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So, so how are they going to, how are they going to build a temple here to co- to be worshiping right next to and be be right next to the Dome of the Rock? That's a good question. I'm not sure anybody really knows exactly how that's going to take place. But here is my thing. And there's some that believe, well, that Dome of the Rock's got to be taken out. It's got to be. It's got to be destroyed because that's where. That's right there is where the the uh, Holy of Holies was. But there is there is there is very convincing evidence now that that is not setting over the holy of holies but it's literally it's literally to the holy of holies set to the north of that and this was the outer court all right so how are they going to build there? Well, I do believe this. There are some that believe there's going to be a couple of wars that will take place. Of course, I talked about the Gog and Magog war here some months back. Uh, there's, an, there's other teaching about the Psalms 80 war that will take place, and they feel that, that, that the Jews will gain, uh, gain control of the Temple Mount and these wars and maybe take, tear down the uh, Dome of the Rock or whatever. I don't know for sure. I can't tell you that's exactly what's going to happen. But I do know this, that uh, I believe, and here's what I believe, that the Antichrist will be instrumental in helping the Jews to get their temple built. I believe that in this covenant, that he's going to ratify this covenant with Israel and the Arabs and, um, and with the Muslims, and, and somehow this is why everybody's going to think he's such a great guy, because he's going to be instrumental in getting, in getting these people together and getting this temple built. And much of the court of the Gentiles, with, as I said, was, was, was the court of the Gentiles was south of that actual Temple Mount. So it's very, very possible that they could build that temple, the Jews could build that temple without the Dome of the Rock being touched. Okay? Is that the way it's going to happen? I don't know, but I do know this. <laughs> it's going to happen. Amen. It's going to be built. It's going to be built. They're actually, you know, the Temple Mount area has to be purified by the ashes of a red heifer. And they're looking for, they're trying to find, they're raising red heifers. And, you know, you know and I, I've often thought, well, you know, what's the big deal about that? Red cow. But that red heifer has to be perfect. It has to be perfect for that red heifer to be kosher, for that red heifer to be accepted. And, and, and I'm not going to go into all of that, what they did under the law of Moses with the, uh, the killing of the red heifer and, and burning of the ashes and storing the ashes, and the ashes were used in the purification of the unclean, and that's what has to be done to purify this temple mount. But, um, but they think, just about the time they think they have a perfect red heifer, Listen, it can't have any blemishes, but listen, it can't even have a white hair. 
and, and that's the problem. They think they've got them. And, and, and I watched a little video about this, but they, they, they take those, those, he, those heifers and they, they, they examine them minutely. If one white hair is found, it's disqualified. Sometimes they, ha they put them aside and wait because the white hair can turn red, but it has to be completely red to be able to get the ashes of the red heifer to purify the temple mount. But the Jews are working on that as well. So where that Dome of the Rock's located is possibly the reason that the outer court is not measured, but it's given to the Gentiles. But they will get it built. They will get it done. God says that they will, and I believe what God says. Amen? Amen. Katie, do you have that little drawing? Can you put that up if we can see that? But this gives you a little drawing of what we just saw the picture of. There's the eastern gate. And right across a straight line through the eastern gate, there's a little gazebo setting there called the Dome of the Spirits. Western gate's on this side. But right in where the Dome of the Spirits is in that area is where they believe the actual Holy of Holies that was, was actually at. So as you can see, if that's the case, then all of this would be outer court, which John was told he didn't need to measure. I hope I'm not boring you, okay? But I just wanted to bring all of this out to kind of give us an idea of how things are progressing and what we see happening in Israel today and that this is going to be a fact. Okay, verse number three. All right, now we're going to talk about these two witnesses. Verse number three says, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. These are two witnesses that are going to be preaching in Jerusalem I believe during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, because like I said, right now we're at the midpoint. Some say their ministry will go into, will we'll cover the second half. Uh, we'll have to, you know, I'm, I'm not positive about that, but I believe that their ministry will cover the first three and a half years. And the Bible says that they, these two witnesses are going to prophesy for 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. The uh, Babylonian calendar that they went by was 30-day months. And so, you know, when it talks about 42 months, it's uh, the months were 30 days, not 30 and 31 and 28 and all that like we have today. But it says that they prophesied clothed in sackcloth. They're, they're, these are two actual men that will be prophesying and preaching in Jerusalem and in the Jerusalem area during this time of the tribulation period. They're not going to be decked out in the latest fashions. They're not going to be preachers with skinny jeans. Amen. <laughs> they're not going to. They're not gonna. They're not gonna have uh, the fanciest suits or anything like that. But it said that they're going to be clothed in sackcloth. If you're familiar with sackcloth, you know what sackcloth is, right? It was a kind of a, a, a rough burlap type material in the Old Testament that they would that they would clothe themselves with. With and the, and sackcloth was a sign of inner mourning and repentance. So what it's saying here with them prophesying clothed in sackcloth means that their message is going to be a message of repentance. They're going to be calling people to Christ and calling people to repentance while all this bad stuff is, is, is taking place. Now, it says that they are the two olive trees, verse 4. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. What is he talking about? Well, I'm not going to take time to go read it, but jot it down. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Zechariah 4, 1 through 6. The two olive trees. And that was a vision in Zechariah 4 that Zechariah had of two, uh, uh, two lampstands with bowls over them and two olive trees with pipes running to those 
lampstands, which 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 um, which signified a, um, a a perpetual and an abundant supply of olive oil from those trees going into those menorah to those lampstands. All right, and it was God's word to Zerubbabel, and when he was building the temple, and God told him, showed him that vision. He said, "What does this mean?" And he said that it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. So he was showing him that vision, letting him know that he and Joshua, the high priest, Zerubbabel and Joshua, were being used of God, and the Holy Ghost was flowing uh, 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 unhindered, amen, and unabated into their life to give them the power to do what they needed to do. So when he said these two witnesses are the two olive trees, he's saying that they have been provided a perpetual supply of oil, of the, the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that these two witnesses are going to be light bearers in Jerusalem during the tribulation period, that first half. These two witnesses are going to be anointed and filled by the power of the Holy Ghost, proclaiming the message of light, the light of the gospel in the midst of a sinful, darkened world. These will be two men that will be full of the power of God. Now, remember, you've got 144,000 Jewish evangelists out there, Apostle Pauls and Billy Grahams that are going around preaching the gospel everywhere, getting people saved. But here, we have these two witnesses just in this Jerusalem area, full of the power of God. Can I tell you something, church, we need to understand today is that as far as the church goes, as far as your life, my life as believers, we must operate in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit as well. Because to us today, it is not by might, it is not by power, but it is by the Spirit of the living God that we will ever do anything or be effective for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So they are prophets of God, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days or three and a half years, and they will be, be viciously hated by the evil world. Verse 5 says this. Here's how hated they will be that people will try to kill them. They will try to stop their ministry. The Antichrist himself will oppose them and try to have them killed and try to stop them. But guess what? Woo! I'm about to shout now. He can't stop them. He's he's the Antichrist empowered by Satan, but he can't stop these guys. Remember last week I said, you remember Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and those guys chasing them? He said, who are those guys? That's what the Antichrist is saying about these two. Who are these guys? I can't stop them. Nobody's able to stop them. I got to slow down. I'm getting too worked up. Verse 5 says, and if anyone wants to harm them, Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Now, this is speaking of supernatural, supernatural protection that God will give to these two witnesses. No one will be able to hurt them until their ministry is complete. Are you hearing me? It said that they will prophesy 1,260 days. So they're not going to die on the 1,259th. They're going to fulfill every, every day that, that the Lord has said that they're going to prophesy for that three and a half years. They will be protected by God and will be indestructible until God allows them to be killed. And only when God allows them to be killed will they be killed by the Antichrist as we, we will see. But notice it says that fire proceeds out of their mouth. Look at this. Now, these are a couple of guys that went to a Mexican restaurant. <laughs> and they had a little overdose of habaneros and jalapenos and all of that, you know. Got, they've got, they, they, what they need, what these guys need here is some Pepsi or some Tums or whatever. So, is this what the Scripture's talking about? That now, and and there, there are all those that say, yeah, it's literal. They're going to breathe fire out of their mouth. And when the, you know, the, the, and it, it could be, it could be if you believe that, that's fine. But I don't think it's talking about them literally breathing fire out of their mouth. 
they're not going to be fire-breathing dragons. But I, I, I look back, there's, you know, the Bible, you, we need to let the Bible interpret the Bible. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Well, you remember when, when, when an evil king sent an, a company of 50 guys out after Elijah. Remember that? He's setting up on the hill, and, and 50 soldiers come to take him. What are they going to do? They're going to take him back to the king. He's going to have Elijah killed. All right? Here's a perfect scenario of what's happened. These 50 soldiers come out against Elijah, and Elijah, they, they said, come on down here, man of God. And he said, well, if I'm a man of God, okay, this, these are the words coming out of his mouth. If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you. And boom, fire from God came down, killed all 50 of them. You remember reading that in the Bible? Amen? The, well, the king sent another 50 out. They came, same thing, told him, you know, same thing. Well, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down. So 100 guys are killed by fire. They can't touch him. They can't touch Elijah because he's being protected. The fire of God's falling. And then the third company comes out. Can you imagine those, that, those 50 guys? You want us to go get who? <laughs> we done heard what happened to the first two groups that went out. Are you kidding me? But, uh, but God did protect Elijah in this manner. And I believe that's what this is referring to. You remember the fire that, that came out and destroyed, destroyed those who stood against Moses. The fire of God came. It wasn't coming out of Moses' mouth, but, but he spoke, uh, you know, against them. The fire of God came. So I believe that's what this is referring to. But, uh, you know, here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. As long as you and I are in the will of God, we are invincible. As long as we're living for Jesus and in the will of God, he'll keep a hedge of protection about you. He'll keep you safe until it's time for him to receive you into heaven and to take you on to glory. Amen. Praise God. And that teaches that right here. So who are these guys? Who are those guys? Who are these witnesses? Well, we have some clues. Verse number 6 doesn't give us any names, but it says these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over waters to turn them to blood. And to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, there are three, suggest three suggestions that are most commonly given concerning who the, what the identity is of these two witnesses. And the first one is that one of them is Elijah. And I happen to believe that is a definite. One of them is Elijah because we know the Bible says and prophesies that Elijah will appear before the great and terrible day of the Lord to prepare the way for the second coming of Jesus. Malachi 3 verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Let me read that again. Malachi 4 and 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So it's prophesied by Malachi that Elijah would come before the second coming. Elijah, what does it say about these prophets? Of these, they are prophets. They will prophesy, but these witnesses. It says that they had, uh, they had power to shut up heaven that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Did Elijah do that? For how long? For three and a half years. Exactly right. How long are these guys going to prophesy? For three and a half years. Okay? So Elijah stopped rain for three and a half years. Elijah also, as we just said, uh, called fire down from heaven against his enemies. 
So these two witnesses will stop rain for the duration of their prophecy. So for three and a half years of these, uh, of these, uh, these witnesses' prophecy, uh, they will have the heavens shut up. Now, another thing about Elijah was this. Elijah didn't die, did he? Elijah didn't die. Horses of fire, chariots of fire came down, swooped him up, and God took Elijah to heaven alive. Where's Elijah today? He's still in heaven, and he's still alive. Amen? He's never, he never has died. He didn't die. He was taken to heaven in that whirlwind. And it is believed by many that uh, he will return so that he can die his appointed death, as Hebrews 9.27 says. So Elijah, here's another third thing about Elijah that, that, that points to him being one of those witnesses, is that Elijah appeared with the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. All three of the synoptic gospels record this, that he appeared on the Mount of Olives with, uh, or on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord Jesus Christ, Moses and Elijah did, or Elijah and Moses. So, so those, those are some pretty good, some pretty good clues that we have right here that one of these witnesses in that tribulation will be Elijah. He's coming back, okay? He's coming back. Oh, man, I'm telling you. But who, 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 who's the other one? Now, many feel number two, the second choice is Moses. Because Moses, what does it say about these guys? Uh, they had power. They had power, verse 6, to over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. You notice that. Well, did Moses have the power to smite the earth with plagues? We see in Exodus 7 through 12, chapter 7 through 12, that Moses with his staff in his hand, boom, he smite with plagues. I mean, was there 10 plagues in Egypt that were brought on by the hand of Moses? Well, it was by God, but God used Moses and gave him the power to do that. So he had the power to do that. What else does it say about them in verse number 6? That they had power over waters to turn them to blood. Did Moses do that? Exodus 7.20 says that he did have the power to turn water to blood. So the third thing, too, about Moses is this. He was the other person to appear with the Lord and with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17.3. So, Elijah represented the prophets, and Moses represented the law, and the reference made is made to both the law and the prophets in Malachi 4, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. The law of Moses and Elijah the prophets is both mentioned in Malachi 4 and 5. Are you still with me? Okay, but Moses wasn't caught up alive, was he? No, the Bible said that he did die. Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 6 tells us that Moses did die. It says Moses, uh, verse 5, Deuteronomy 5, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died, 34 and 5, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and God buried him in the valley of the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, and no man knows his burial place to this day. Somebody told my dad one time, said, well, Moses never did die. My dad said, well, if he didn't, God buried him alive. But he said, God buried him. <laughs> Amen. But Moses did die, but his body was taken by God. Are you with me? And it was hidden and preserved by the Lord according to these verses. Now, Satan, Satan fought and contended to have and argued to have the body. Satan wanted the body of Moses. Why would he want the body of Moses? Some have said, well, because if, uh, if he got the body of Moses, he'd have Israel to make a shrine out of it and worship it, and they may have. But he fought. And Jude, listen to what Jude 9 says. Jude 1 and 9 says, yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, and we have very little about this. This is the only verse that talks about it. That Michael the archangel, when he was contending with the devil, he disputed about with the devil about the body 
of Moses. And he dared not bring a railing accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So the devil wanted the body of Moses for some reason. Is it possible that, the, that Satan knew uh, what God had planned for Moses in the future? Very possible. So Enoch is the third one. Some believe it's going to be Enoch and Elijah. Some believe it's going to be Moses and Elijah. Now, Enoch was a prophet of judgment. The Bible tells us, Jude tells us that. He was a prophet of judgment of, uh, and a prophet of the second coming. In Jude 1, 14 and 15, he spoke of both. Enoch prophesied of both. The second coming when Christ comes with all of his saints and of the judgment of God. Enoch, though, here's the thing about Enoch, and some people use Enoch because they say just like Elijah. Um, Mr. Dake teaches this, and there's others that teach this, that just like Elijah, Enoch didn't die. He was caught up alive. So many feel that Enoch and Elijah have to come back and be these two witnesses and... Um, and each one of them die their death and then, as we'll see, be raised again. And so, um, so could it be Moses? We know. I, I'm settled on the fact one of them's Elijah, okay? I'm settled on that fact. No doubt in my mind. If it's not, I'm going to say, well, Lord, I should, sure was fooled. But, uh, <laughs> but I believe that. But, um, but who's the other one going to be? So, you know, I, I don't know if we can actually be sure. But the thing about Enoch was this. Even though he was caught up alive and all that, he's still in heaven alive. He's never died yet. Enoch predated the birth of the Jewish nation. So he wasn't a part of Israel because he prophesied in the fifth chapter. His life is talked about and his rapture is talked about in the fifth chapter of Genesis, uh, ministering, you know, there, to the, talking about the Antediluvians. So um, he predated the Jewish nation. And, um, and uh, you know, except for Elijah, God doesn't give a specific name. So, you know, it's going to be Elijah and one of these other two. Does it matter? It doesn't matter. I, I, you know, I've, I've, I've leaned toward Enoch. Then I'll read it and study it, and then I'll lean toward Moses. And then I'll think, nah, it's probably Enoch. And uh, then, boy, I'll, I'll lean back toward Moses again. But, uh, but it's going to be, it's going to be one of these. Okay, all right. Are, are you with me? Okay. Verse seven. We got, we got to hurry here. When they finished their testimony, verse 7, okay, they're prophesying for 1,260 days, three and a half years, these two witnesses. And when they finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, which is the Antichrist, who's been trying to kill them all these years, the beast will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. He'll be successful. When their ministry is finished. Did you notice that? First part of verse 7. When their ministry is, when, when they finish their testimony. So when their ministry is finished, the Antichrist will overcome them and kill them. But again, they were protected for three and a half years until their ministry was ended. And for three and a half years, they have been, these two witnesses have been a thorn in people's side, in the Antichrist side for all this time. And they've preached and they've preached and it's drove these wicked, evil people crazy. But you know what they did? They just kept on preaching. They just kept on testifying. They just kept on preaching that repentance in sackcloth. And so the Antichrist is able to overcome them and kill them. But look at verse 8. <clears throat> and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the, of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. So their bodies are left unburied. You know, um, Muslims do that to their enemies, put them on display. Did you know that? You've probably seen that on, on the news. But their bodies lie in the street uh, of the great city. They're left unburied in Jerusalem. 
But look what God says here. The Holy Spirit says about Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem's the only city that God calls his own and places his name there. But here he calls, calls this city. And this is the city that Jesus wept over and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that killeth the prophets. How often would I have gathered you under my wings, but you would not. You were not willing. But notice what it says. Now he likens Jerusalem to Egypt and Sodom. Why? It's because of the sin, the ungodliness, and the rejection of Jesus Christ that's going on in that city. Egypt represents idolatry. Sodom, you know what that represents. All kinds of perversion and, and uncleanness and sin. And so that's what's going on in the city of Jerusalem. So he's, he, he refers to it as Sodom in Egypt. And verse 9 says, Then those from the peoples, now listen to this, those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies for three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. Talking about these two witnesses. You know, for hundreds of years, folks, for hundreds of years, this verse right here stumped Bible scholars. They could not figure this out. Many people even used this verse to say the Bible's not true. You know why? Because it said that, that tribes, tongues, and nations would all see their bodies for three and a half days. And so it was impossible 100 years ago and even before that, it was impossible for the whole world to see dead. The dead. It would have been impossible for the whole world to see this taking place. People all over the world, the only people that would have saw it would have been those right there on the scene in Jerusalem. But today, today, with satellite TV, with Internet, with uh, uh, Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and chit-chat and everything else <laughs> that they've got going today. Amen. This is, can you see it now? How, you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, it was hard to explain. Uh, but, but, man, now we can see where every nation on the earth will see this happen live. The entire world will watch this play out on CNN and Fox and MSNBC and ABC and CBS and every other channel and every cell phone and every iPad. They'll be watching this take place live because they're all happy that these guys are dead. It's just like they'll be happy when the church is gone. And I'll be happy too. It'll make two of us happy. But look at verse 10. Just give me a couple more minutes. And those who dwell on the earth <clears throat> will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets did what? Tormented those. A preacher actually tormenting somebody? Can't imagine that. They tormented those who dwell on the earth. See, when these two witnesses are slaughtered, when these two witnesses are finally killed after three and a half years, there's going to be a global celebration all over the world. Yeah, it's going to be party time. I mean, people are, it says here they're going to rejoice and make merry and give gifts to one another. They're going to give, they're going to exchange presents. They're going to, they're going to send out, they're going to go down to Hallmark and get their happy dead witness day cards, you know. <laughs> And they're going to send them out. You know, hey, they'll be, be high-fiving. Happy Dead Witness Day. Oh, isn't it good that these witnesses, these guys tormented us all these years. We're glad they're gone. They're dead. They're laying out here in the street. And they leave them lay there. And they give gifts to one another. And they rejoice. And they shout. And they jump up and down. And they do all these things because they, they torment them. And you know what? This is the only time in the book of Revelation in, in the, in, during the tribulation period that people rejoice. The only time during the tribulation that people rejoice in is over the death of two witnesses, is over the death of two godly men, two of God's prophets, causes the whole, they die and the whole world is happy. Man. Well, they made us feel uncomfortable, so just leave them in the gutter and let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. They're deplorable. Yeah. 
And they think that they've really scored a big victory. That's the way it is with the devil. He always thinks, I got it now. I got it now. They think they've scored a big victory for Satan and the Antichrist. But three and a half days later, while this is all playing out on national TV and international TV, worldwide TV, they're going to learn just how wrong they were because it ain't over yet. God has a big surprise. Amen. Come on. Praise the Lord. God has a big surprise. Verse 11 says, After the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. I guess so. Hallelujah. Amen. I mean, news cameras are covering this event. They're focused on two bodies that are left in the street. All the festivities and the dancing and the shouting that's going on. And then all of a sudden, the corpses the corpses begin to breathe. They think they notice uh, the little bit of breath there, the stomach going up and down. The reporter that's looking at them, he notices maybe a little twitch in one of their hands and the whole world is watching and every network has a breaking news story at what's getting ready to happen and then all of a sudden all of a sudden while the cameras are on them and TVs on I mean they're going to break into the young and the restless and whatever else people are watching they're going to break in a breaking news story from Jerusalem and all of a sudden hallelujah both those witnesses that's been laying there in the street dead not breathing for three days are going to stand up and look in the camera and say we're back hallelujah Woo. man that's enough to make an Egyptian mummy jump up and shout glory to God and said that well, that's the Rick Hensley translation by the way but great fear falls on everyone and it says oh no They've been dead three and a half days, and now they're alive. And, you know, Jesus, remember he said that during this time of tribulation, men's hearts will fail them for fear, for things that are coming upon the face of the earth. Great fear fell upon them. It was kind of like when Belshazzar was drinking that, Brother Jim, drinking that wine out of the holy vessels of God and praising the gods of stone and gold and silver. And all of a sudden there appeared the hand, a man's hand appeared, and the fingers of a man's hand began to write over in the plaster of the palace wall. Meany, meany, tekel, you farce, and you remember that. And you remember what it says about Belshazzar when he saw that. It said that the, his, his loins smote one against other. His knees started knocking. There was great fear. I'm going to tell you God knows how to get people's attention. He knows how to do it. Amen? Verse 12, we're, we're, we're here again. And they heard a loud voice from heaven. These guys have stood up. They heard a loud voice from heaven. And what did that voice say? Come up here. We heard that voice back in chapter 4. Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. See, they hear this loud voice. And they ascend in a cloud as their enemies are watching in awe and fear. There's some that try to teach that this is, is the rapture, and they put the rapture in the mid-trib. No, this is not the rapture. This is, this is not the rapture. The rapture takes place, Paul said, in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. And the rapture takes place just like that. But this event's gradual enough for others to see and observe. The whole world's going to see this event. The whole world isn't going to see the rapture. It's a secret event that's going to come. He's coming as a thief in the night to take his church out. Amen? But these witnesses are caught up. They're raptured. They ascend to heaven while everybody watches them. Just similar to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole world will see it on TV, watching it on TV, live as it takes place. These witnesses are leaving, and they're leaving with a bang. Because at the same time that it happens, as they're going up in the same hour, verse 13 said, there's a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people are killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. A great earthquake 
happens at that moment in that hour kills 7,000 people. A lot of people to die in an earthquake in one city. This is just one city. A 10% of the city of Jerusalem is wiped out. And those who are left will look at all these things and they will recognize that divine, that, that, that the divine origin, that it, what has taken place and happened was from God and they'll give glory to God. It didn't say that they repented. It said they gave glory to God. See, this is the kind of, this kind of giving glory is often what people do when they're in trouble. When they're in difficult times, people call on God for help and promise to live right. If he'll get them out of their trouble, anybody here, you don't have to raise your hand. Anybody here ever, be, ever done that in the past, been in trouble and say, oh, God, if you'll help me, I'll go back to church. God, if you'll get me out of this, I'll live for you. And then he gets them out of it, and then they don't do nothing. People make those promises, and then when the trouble's over, those promises are quickly forgotten, and there's no true repentance, and that's kindly the idea I get about these people. They give glory to God. They, they, you, how are they going to deny this is not God when they see what has happened? Pretty good evidence. Pretty good evidence. Verse 14 says, And the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So, this ends the second woe. The seventh trumpet and the third and final woe are still to come. The end of the age here, ladies and gentlemen, in these passages is rapidly, quickly coming, approaching. God, as we can see, what's he doing? What's he doing? It's an interlude between all those judgments for him to give them some signs and, and show them without a doubt, look, the very thing that these men have been preaching. God is real. God is awesome. They've been striking the, 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 the earth with plagues. They've been shutting up heavens. They've been calling fire down from heaven. And now they, they lay dead for three days, and now they're resurrected and ascend into heaven while all the world watches. They can't deny this. And they say they give glory to God. But God's looking for them to turn to him and repent so next week seventh trumpet third woe getting into some heavy stuff we'll finish up next week 11th chapter a few more verses there and then jump into the 12th chapter